Hello and welcome to the Private Practice Made Perfect podcast. I'm Kathy Love. I started life as an OT, had a, an amazing, crazy private practice which I sold. And what I do now is help allied health business owners create a business that serves them, the time, the money, the joy that they absolutely deserve. And this is where my idea for the podcast started. What I want to do is to capture how hard allied health business owners in Australia work to achieve their dreams, to support their teams, to create amazing outcomes for their clients. So sit back, beverage of joys, drive safely, walk carefully, however you're listening in, and I hope you absolutely enjoy Chantel Robards is in for a podcast conversation today. Hello. Good afternoon, Kathy. It is good afternoon. Lordy Lord, where has today gone? Um, you are the best person I know to explain the role that you have because I don't always get the title right. So talking sure. stick to you. And it is a little tricky. Um, uh, okay, so right now I'm working <laughs> at Allied Health subject matter specialist for the Boosting the Local Care Workforce program. Um, the Boosting program is a DSS-funded program that's been running for, I think, four years now with one more to go. Um, and we kind of have three areas that we um, we focus on. One would be policy development. Um, so we do that by engaging with DSS on a monthly basis around what's happening in, in the marketplace across NDIS, aged care and veterans affairs and so we can give them market intelligence in real time rather than lagging data which is the way things usually roll that's been particularly critical in that last couple of years with COVID so that they're hearing directly from the market very quickly Uh, we also have a focus on uh, market development so we might do that by supporting uh, providers to connect with other services that can help grow their capacity and um, provide information to them about uh, engaging with NDIS or within the aged care market or veterans affairs. Um, and then the third area we've, we're very focused on, of course, is workforce. And um, at the moment, our strong focus on workforce is around connecting all the players in that uh, employment market together. Mm-hmm. So connecting providers with training organisations and employment services organisations to try and establish some pipelines um, of full workforce uh, for providers. So that's kind of us. We're a national program. We have a team in each state and territory and we have a few specialist roles, mine being one of them. We also have a rural and remote specialist and uh, we have a couple of vacancies, uh, a skills and training specialist and um, who we share with HSSO, Human Services Skills Organisation, um, and, um, and we have a director and a couple of vacancies around the place as well, if anyone's looking for work. <laughs> well, there you go, straight to the pitch. Of all the things we can talk about, let's focus on workforce because sure. that's just the huge smallest thing we could get into. <laughs> Yeah, right. So um, we're in a bit of trouble, aren't we, Kathy, right now? in the not, uh, It's not pretty. It's not pretty. It, except that it's not locked down like it has been across 2020 and 2021. There's more movement. It's. I think there's still some concern about where that movement is coming and going to, though. I agree with you. Loads of movement um, as we emerge from sort of pandemic to endemic stage of COVID um, and people about reevaluate 
Mm. And we talk about that great resignation that you and I spoke about several months ago and uh, certainly we seem to have seen a bit of an element of that here, maybe not as strongly Mm. as what they saw in the United States. But um, people are bumping around and businesses are starting to recover and reconsider growth Mm. again uh, in this now that we're pushing through uh, into the the next phase of that of that pandemic, so yeah, we we certainly hearing about lots of movement, um, not just within the care and support sector, of course, which is where I live, but across uh, basically lots of poaching and headhunting. I'm yeah, hearing it's right that. across allied health. Yeah, right across allied health. So from um, you know large sort of private medical and health services um, swooping in and and um, headhunting staff with really attractive mm-hmm. offers and um, and moving across from health into disability and back the other way and, um, yeah, public, private, there's just um, movement all around and no guarantee people will stay in the allied health segment. That, that yeah. Thing. yeah. What do you think is happening in that ex- at that exit door? You know, are there I'm probably, you, I don't know if you've got any numbers on this, but how many clinicians are leaving the profession? Sadly, we don't. I know there's some projects underway to try and grab some of this data. I think some of the the challenges with our allied health data is that we live in so many different parts of... of, (laughs) A collective noun. We just... um, It's hard to capture our data because we, yeah, we're we're just kind of in in so many different um, parts of of society. Mm. Uh, The the peaks certainly try and grab it. and I know Anne-Marie Boxall, our Chief Allied Health Officer at the moment, is very focused on trying to improve that sort of uh, level of data. So unfortunately, I don't have a good handle on how many are leaving the professional together. I think there was some research, though, a few years ago that talked about the average life of a clinician in terms of frontline, mm-hmm. and it's around 10 years. Um, so I'm like, more than I thought. Yeah, I wonder if that's pulled up. Well, given that we're predominantly female, how much maternity leave sort of is spread yeah. between that te- in within that ten years? I know I certainly did, as um, many of my friends did. So um, that's not necessarily ten years full time either. Yeah, um, there True. could be, there could be breaks in that period of time, and then of course we know that allied health professionals are largely very smart capable solution focused people (laughs) so when management roles go on offer it's very common for the allied health professionals to be the right candidate to step up and move their career into that a management funnel rather than stay and remain in that clinical Mm. side of things and of course the introduction of the NDIS has certainly reduced and that sort of career pathway options for allied health in terms of clinical career progression so um, yeah, so I think we've got lots of dynamics going yeah. on there and um, certainly a couple of, of more than one university that I know of that are really looking to see where they might be able to do some research to try and grab a hold of that data. Yeah, because while there's a cohort that are potentially leaving the profession, the, there's others coming coming in. Um, so just back to clinicians leaving the profession, what do you think the short, medium, long-term impact of that is going to be? Well, uh, look, we're seeing it now, I think, Kathy. The right now is that we can't fill positions in metropolitan Sydney. (laughs) Um, I don't think I've ever in my too many years for me to put a number on of practice 
um, have seen where metropolitan recruitment is such an issue. Um, it's always been difficult in rural areas and, of course, remote has always been almost impossible. But now we're at the point where regionally it's difficult, metropolitan it's difficult. Mm. Um, there literally are not enough bums to go in all the seats. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what we know it's a four-year turnaround in terms of even if they increase the intake tomorrow of allied health professions professionals, there's a four years until we, we get those people through. There's no guarantee that the people um, that go in will graduate, as we know. Yep. They move on to, you know, they do a year and, and jump across and, I, you know, there's probably data yeah. courses kids um, bump around and across mm. the days. I think it's probably more than once they change their their mind on what they want to study um, and graduate and, and then do they go out to the workforce or do they study again? <laughs> there's, um, there's Or travel now. You know, this, these current cohorts have got the chance to travel again. Yes, yes. So there's all sorts of things going on there too. So no guarantee that an increase in mm, will yep, be an increase yep. in graduates. Yeah. Do you have any visibility on uh, new undergrad programs popping up around the countryside? Uh, I don't within my sector. Mm. Um, individually, um, many businesses are introducing uh, new grad uh, programs to support new grads uh, when they come yep. out. Um, give them a, a nice supported first couple of years and invest in them. Yeah, which is really nice. Um, in terms of undergraduate, I did. I was talking to. I think UTAS have been trying really hard. That's exactly the example I thought. I thought it was good to go, and then it's on hold again. I think. Yeah, they're trying. They've been trying so hard to get some um, to get some allied health down there because, of course, all of their interested candidates move out of Tassie to, to study and then and potentially stay stay away yeah, yeah yeah so really important um and those uh workplaces that are in the footprint of a university of course are able to attract student placements and we know at the moment student placements are the one pipeline that you have yep, available yep. To golden you. pipeline yeah. <laughs> um i i'm hearing that most graduates now have jobs well before their graduation date and and sometimes before they even start fourth year they've already signed um, up exactly right yeah exactly right so if you had the ear of um you know some of the deans of the allied health schools that undergrad level oh just for listeners there was an eye roll and a, a <laughs> dance of anticipation what would you what would you what would you whisper to them I know you'd probably use more than a whisper, but what would you want undergrad allied health professionals to know? Yeah, um, this is a really great question. Thank you, Kathy. And just to clarify, my eye roll was more about how how difficult it is to get to <laughs> the universities, not about the deans themselves. Um, Absolutely. Because uh, we need really more content in many undergraduate degrees, like yeah. for me, my sector, the care and support sector, um, and that content, not just about the clinical aspects of working in our sector, but also the business model and the service delivery models that exist. Um, Disability, just the whole ethics around it. Ethics, complexity, yeah. um, the multiple layers of complexity that mm. our families often present with. It's at, oh, Sometimes it's not your clinical stuff, you know, just isn't the most important yep. thing right now yep. for a family. Um the amount of supervision that it's actually okay to ask for and continue with for at least like really quite intensively for a couple yep. of years while you're cutting mm. your teeth. 
but also working in a fee-for-service model. So what I hear a lot from um, business owners and employers is uh, that new grads really struggle to work within that billable hours model and unfortunately that's the reality of a care and support now no matter where you work you're in a fee-for-service environment and there will be an expectation that you you work at a certain you earn a certain number of billable hours each day and um, yeah many clinicians sort of talking to me about we've set really low targets for them to try and gradually build them up but we're still finding that a lot of them struggle um, to get up to that level yeah, quickly enough for their position to be viable. <laughs> because, yeah. yeah, we talk, uh, I think uh, the other element that I'd love um, universities to talk to undergrads about is actual business and really some just business 101 um, in terms of viability and um, and how to how to work in a in a private practice model. Yep, yep. In a, yep, in a commercial environment. Commercial environment, thank yep. you. Yeah, much better language there um, because that's the reality and that's where most of the jobs are. Yeah. It reminds me, I used to do a little bit of work into one of the unis around some of that, but that was years, years ago. And then I heard another university, a Melbourne-based one, um, the OT school realised that the business school was down the other end of the hallway. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And so they were bringing in some business subjects uh, as well. So universities have probably got everything they need somewhat on tap they may not have the specialist NDIS uh, kind of knowledge but the resources surely are there yeah from what I hear it's it's about how packed their curricula already are and I appreciate that having obviously done the degree myself a long time ago um, we were on a lot of contact hours back then and I can't imagine many things have changed so um, I think it's fitting new content in that's difficult. Yeah. So I wonder if there's an opportunity there for us to be building some, maybe not frame it as coursework, but, um, you know, sort of career support content, I suppose, yeah. um, that, that we provide to undergraduates outside of the mm. university curriculum that mm. they engage in themselves. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if there's any entrepreneurs out there that are, looking at expanding their business, there might be a little market in that um, for some decent. I know, yeah, there are a few, yeah, there are a few getting into that. Yeah, I, I really see some, some Parallel universe. Um, it could double up as a good workforce um, attraction yeah. Um, yeah. strategy. Yeah. 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 No, I know of a, a few and they're working incredibly well yeah. um, where the, the invitation is to undergraduates and early career clinicians who want to, you know, kind of fast track their clinical professional knowledge in a particular wedge of of topic. Yeah, so goals. Super smart. Yeah, it's great. Uh, it's it's a bit of an investment, but I think um, we could get some mileage out of that in terms of um, attracting more undergrad or postgrad or early graduates into into the jobs that we yep. need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the thing about KPIs seems to be um, ugh, so complex. Uh, but it's also one of the big trading cards on the recruitment game table at the moment. And there's big organisations and medium and small and everyone's in there competing. But 
one of the big ticket items that, and the candidates totally hold the cards and they, you know, negotiate, well, you know, I can get this here with this sort of billable expectation, or I can get this with you with that billable expectation. Um, my choice is you, smaller provider. How can you kind of sweeten the deal? Is that how you're hearing it? Um, yes, to a level. Um, so I suppose um, that interesting doing some work at the moment uh, around onboarding and also what makes these jobs attractive. And um, the overwhelming statistic says that, yeah, while people will jump across for a salary increase mm-hmm. initially, that wears off pretty quick because they kind of get used to the extra money and then it's not so special anymore. And it's mm-hmm. actually other things that um, they start looking for. And the number one is is growth is career growth and that's in the professional in the professional um, sort of part of the workforce. So, um, you know, I think if people are thinking along the lines of how can we, what can we put in place that um, you might have a salary sweetener in there or a retention bonus or, or something yep. good in, but I think we need to be thinking far more broadly about people's whole, whole view of their career and, and job. Um, if somebody moves the other, you know, we're looking a bit working with a, fabulous program out of Tari at the moment where they're um, very short on allied health across the board, health, rehab, private, NDIS, aged care everywhere. They just are very, very limited. With their allied health, they're sort of probably classed as regional, I suppose, on the New South Wales north, mid-north coast. Mm. So not only two hours from Newcastle, so not certainly, um, you know, remote. the back of birth. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, but they just can't attract any. They're very close to Port Macquarie and Coffs Harbour which are, um, and Foster, which are beachside, even though the beach is not very far from Tari either. It's mm. still people, if they're going that way, are choosing those other locations. So they have, um, they're doing this wonderful sort of whole of community approach to sell the, the town. Oh, wow, the lifestyle, yeah, yes. In, um, putting in that support around the new recruits to make sure they connect with community. So that's another, you know, if you're trying to recruit, that's another thing, another sweetener if people are moving moving to work for you mm. is to offer them, you know, sort of connections to local community. And yep. even in city areas, I can see that, yeah. you know, let yep. me help you find a good childcare yeah, uh, let me introduce you to the assistant principal. He's the captain of the netball club. I've seen that work really well. A bunch of our clients have nailed that yeah. and literally built out the lifestyle saying we're more than an employer. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you've looked at Kath Cosgrove's or Dr. Kath Cosgrove's research, um, but she's made it really clear that the people who do make those connections are the people who stay. Um, mm-hmm. and it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she talks about, she's, it's fascinating, she talks about we all, we often think, well, we should be targeting new grads because they're single and they don't have kids and they'll be happy to move. But actually if you can nab a, a young family, <laughs> they tend <laughs> yeah. to move and put down roots because the kids make friends and the kids start sport and they and they put down roots and, and they tend to stay where the new grad comes for a year and then moves on. Yeah, a bit more transient. Yeah, yeah. So just a different way of thinking in terms of recruitment. Um, yeah. So, yeah, her her website's worth a look. All righty. We might add that into the show notes. Running a business isn't just about setting up shop and becoming complacent. It's about showing up for ourselves and our clients with a commitment to continuous improvement. We have to be honest with ourselves about where we're at and where we're going. That means identifying strengths and weaknesses so we can improve. 
After all, if we're remaining stagnant, how can we scale and build the business and life of our dreams? That's where the NACAR Consulting Allied Health Biz Quiz comes in. We're not talking horoscopes and pulsopia. This questionnaire is the perfect starting point for you to begin identifying your strengths, needs, and blind spots as an allied health business owner. The process is simple. Answer the 14 questions and we'll send you a personalized report that includes actionable steps for you to start taking your business to the next level. Ready to take your business into your own hands? Take the NACAR Consulting Allied Health Biz Quiz today. So when we're thinking about the topics we were going to chat about, just trying to narrow it down, narrow it down, narrow it down, we kind of landed with this idea of, you know, the barriers that um, prevent allied health business owners from doing things differently. We've certainly ticked off the workforce, um, the workforce piece, and we're going to be talking about workforce for the rest of, you know, our professional lives. Let let that just simmer in the in the background. Um, what about what about service delivery models and what what therapy services actually look like on the on the ground? What are your thoughts around that? Well, look, we're looking at at any way we can support businesses to mm. try and um, combat the fact that growth is difficult when you can't recruit, <laughs> um, and what what strategies they might consider putting in place to yep. um, to find some solutions in there. And obviously there's a lot of chat about the allied health assistant role and where that fits and that actually made an appearance in the NDIS workforce plan that was released last year, which is now being redone just for anybody who hasn't um, had the heads up. Got to the end of reading the first one. (laughs) New government, new plan. Um, However, there's still a lot of chatter and work being done around the allied health assistant Mm. role. Now lots of businesses have tried it. some have made it work. Some have found that they haven't been able to make it work and it hasn't been through lack of effort. Um, and then others use it really quite openly as a workforce pipeline, so using undergrads. And so um, we'll tolerate some of the profitability around yeah. it. Um, yeah. I, I have one business who does it extraordinarily well, who we, we both know, um, uh, they know that some of that runs at a loss, but it, Um, the win on the other end when the person is recruited, the savings in recruitment, action recruitment, onboarding, um, and they get to billable targets really fast because they've had a lot of on-the-ground training and they know the families and they know the business and they're able to just sort of... Ready to go, yeah. Um, So they come out in front at the other end and that's really um, good, mature business analysts. No analyst yep, yep. Um, eyes looking on on that. Um, so uh, viability really is the number one issue that's mm. faced with me as to why businesses do find this hard to work. And I can understand the NDIS rates aren't that generous for our, especially level one allied health assistant. You probably mm. wouldn't go there. You wouldn't even yeah, offer super tough. Rate. Yeah, um, but the level two rate is getting closer but what 86 86 ish something yep what i'm hearing from business is that if they get a really good candidate that can do a lot of stuff fairly autonomously fairly quickly they can make it work but if they have a candidate that needs a load of supervision yeah isn't learning as quickly as what is Mm -hmm. ideal then they're very quickly running at a loss that margin evaporates very quickly. Effort required to maintain, yep. So looking, so our viability certainly 
is can be a challenge and I think there's a significant overlap there between H, the HR component um, yeah. as well as the, um, the cap, the price cap um, challenge. That yeah, I was so hoping there'd be a few more dollars on um, AHA rate. Yeah, everybody was, I think. Yeah. We'll keep trying. Um, so that that's an issue. And then we have the HR issue as a whole in terms of we've mm. got Cert 3, Cert 4 courses that are on offer um, and then we've got a, a whole lot of undergrads that can work in this role too with the NJS not requiring a, a qualification yep. at the moment. Yep. So there's flexibility. Whereas in the health system, an allied health assistant has to have a cert form. Mm. So there's, um, you know, there's uh, complexities around that that HR component depending on which part of the market you yeah. work in. And then it's about attracting or having the right recruit step into the role for that reason yeah. we just talked about yeah. so that the role is viable as quickly as possible. Which, course, which requires a whole lot of analysis, design and analysis from a business owner point of view. Um, it, it's, you know, that you can't just bring in AHAs and hope it's going to work because the math looks kind of all right. Like, I think it's going to work. Hope is not a strategy, as so many of our clients have heard me say for years on end. Um, it's pretty sophisticated forecasting um, and planning. It is. It is. And then you've got to track as well so it's not even just the forecasting once you're yeah. in you've got to yeah. be yeah to just make and sure on it and really um kind of kind of on it but you know we've spoken about this before I'm really excited about the professional career of AHAs I think it's an amazing career path for so many people um it, it feels as though it needs some Oh, it sounds terrible. The only word I can think of is maturity. It feels as though it needs to really kind of step up and step out and yeah. do all of those things that probably allied health professionals and dental hygienists we were talking about before do all of do all of the things that those other super important support professions have yeah. done. Um, vet vet nurses too. Vet nurses, classic example. Yep. Um, and I think the, it started, the work has started. So the um, AHANA, which is I think Allied Health Assistant Network Australia, are in yep. the process of incorporating and becoming becoming a bit more of a formal entity and they are now looking at a capability framework, a national capability framework. So that's, that's all happening. Um, yeah, so some governance and some, yeah. yeah. I think is what is required. I, I know there's a lot of, so we talked about barriers. The other two barriers that are uh, really um, raised, well, one that's raised by the sector is the insurance and risk component because yep. there's, with a lack of a framework from the top, from a top level or a governing body, there's a lot of grey area around yeah. who's resp where responsibility and liability starts and stops. Um, and the other one that I have talked to you about, Kathy, <laughs> is that internal change management process mm. that as professionals we'll, we will need to make to become delegators. Yep. Um, and I think that is potentially going to be the hardest solution for mm. some of us to find because um, that, you know, that's a real shift in thinking about how we work and where we where we might fit within a, a service delivery model. 
um, and a bit of a letting go process for mm. not having control over every aspect of our interventions. And I, I know as a clinician, I'll put my hand up and say there's elements of that that I would struggle with. Yeah, yeah. But that struggle is totally understood and it sits in the context of the AHA profession not yet having definition um, and and that governance. And so if we think about allied health professionals needing to rethink that the way they partner with AHAs, partner with the client and the AHA, um, you know, that needs to progress at a certain speed. And in the car on the lane next to it, so too does the governance have to go. And I think that the two are going to inform each other. Yeah, I suspect so. And and probably over the next 10 years, we're going to see that move around. That long? Oh, I think it'll take some. I think we'll have something in the next year or two. Just yeah. Um, but it, I would expect that this being new, at least to the care and support sector, of course, this role's been going forever and a day within yeah, elsewhere. Yeah. Successfully. Um, so, but as I've talked to lots of people, there, there's sort of sometimes a bit of an attitude, well, health do it, so why can't the private sector? How hard can it be? You've just got to write a program and uh, teach <laughs> that's, it to somebody. That's right. And unfortunately, there's just a lot of complexity that sits around it for the care and support sector. Mm-hmm. And um, and those that infrastructure, really, we need, we need put in place so that we can put, get this together and scale it um, and really get it happening. It is... It is, in my view, the, the probably most obvious um, part solution to our current workforce mm. issues where uh, our program, just for your audience, are uh, working on a little project right now where we're, we're really looking hard at how we can do this in remote areas and where the mm. AHA might be recruited in commu- within community and the mm. allied health professional would zoom in for the supervision component. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have the NGIA have said absolutely um, both professional and assistant can claim for those sessions. So we've resolved the billing challenge of that. Um, I mean, at the moment, they just are uh, people out there aren't spending their therapy money at all because they can't access services yeah. at all. So we're just looking at some solutions right now for that. So watch this space a bit mm. as well. But outside of that, the other issue we'd love to see is group pricing move about, you know, move into a space where it's. Um, Understood. <laughs> and attractive because that's another obvious um, solution, isn't it? Yeah. yeah yep. we, we could be running groups more effectively and not at a loss. Mm. Then um, that's another solution to our workforce. Yeah. Yep. Well. What do you think? Um, what do you think are the first steps for professionals to start to release whatever it is to bring AHAs into the into the crew with clients, where do you think that needs to start? Well, I think it's an acceptance. It needs to start with an acceptance that uh, mm-hmm. recruiting allied health professionals perhaps is just not going to be the solution if you've been recruiting for months and months and months and you're not yep. even getting applications anymore. Um, at some point we have to accept that, you know, it's possibly never going to happen and we need to look at something else. Um, we're running some... Uh, some information sessions um, in the coming months around these uh, service de- delivery model viability challenges, HR challenges, and Kathy, thank you, is presenting for us as well on that delegated um, model service model. Yeah. So uh, we've got a we've got a bit coming up that hopefully will support people mm. to start opening opening their minds and hearts to this as being an option. 
Um, we're also working closely with Ahana um, and in terms of um, ongoing engagement with them so that we can support their efforts to um, consolidate as an as an incorporated association mm-hmm. and develop their capability and uh, governance frameworks. So um, that will give us a good underpinning to what that role looks like. But I wouldn't suggest that we need to wait to tr- for that to try. We can try mm-hmm. carefully, cautiously um, moving forward before that. Um, uh, the other, if people decide that they want to move forward and are considering the vet qual, um, that vet qual uh, as an option, um, we've, um, I've just been introduced through our wonderful skills and um, and training uh, specialist Sue Ellen Evans, who works for the Human Services Skills Organisation. She has shown me how engagement with uh, registered training organisations is actually possible. Um, So you actually develop a relationship with your uh, chosen RTO and you can actually tell them what you need the graduates to be able to do. Oh, cool. And have a bit more control. And I've just never considered that as being an option. I just thought people went and they were taught what they were taught and they spit out the other end. The curriculum was all locked down and... Yeah, but apparently wow. you have the ability to really ask mm. them to um, to cater for what you need um, at the other end. So um, certainly I'd encourage people to have a look at HSSO's websites because some really... Um, great resources on there and we can put those in the notes too, Cathy, if that's helpful for people um, around how to engage with RTOs. Um, If you're looking for uh, a really half step into AHA, you can try the platforms that are available who take some of that risk for you in terms of payment and insurance and like Ali Assist. Um, You can give them a go. Uh, Umbo, I think, do a similar kind of model. Possibly, yep. Health, yep. Um, just therapy in uh, South Australia as well offer a similar model. So there's three that I know of, and I'm not choosing those for any reason other than they're the three that I know of. <laughs> so uh, worth um, having a little look on websites mm. and things, and that way you can perhaps move into a a, a trial. You know, give it a try without um, biting yep. off more than you can chew. Yep. Yeah. But nor can we expect allied health assistance to fit in with allied health professionals like it's it's got to be a, a tango here um i distinctly remember like i don't remember a lot from university for a, a lot of obvious reasons but i i know that we learned how to work with assistance i i remember the models that we were taught um and that we were taught to develop programs and how to monitor somebody else implementing them and, you know, that was totally a thing. We had assistance in the schools that I worked in. I had assistance in the hospitals. And it, we that was part of our undergraduate piece. That was nothing to be afraid of. They were one of the other team members. That's all, all it was. They had a different role. Yeah, and um, I certainly don't remember that, but I did do one placement in a rural mm. um a rural placement and um, they, that hospital had an AHA and that was my that was my only exposure to it. But it was certainly, yeah, it was just just the normal. How it was. Yeah, just the normal thing um, in speech. Uh, then in that particular, that was out, out west in Broken Hill at the time. So, yeah, I, you know what we are taught though, Cathy? We're taught how to build capacity in families and parents and 
<laughs> and classroom assistance and home, yeah. home assistance. Yep. Yeah, that's right. So probably the model's not far different to that. Um, so I wonder sometimes uh, if we're scaring ourselves unnecessarily. Because mm, we never asked about the insurance question about educating a nanny to deliver a program. No. I didn't. Not, I should have. Um, and I, but I, I do understand people's risk aversion mm. in, the current, in our current environment. Yeah. Um, yep. And some of the things we do with clients can hurt them. You know, I think we have to yep. remember that. we working in professions where people can be injured and hurt and yeah. um, there isn't, you know, we're working mm. with complex people with complex disabilities often and, and there's risk even when we're working with them. <laughs> so... Um, you do want to, you know, not every client is going to be a yep. client that you're happy to delegate mm. um, to somebody else. And, um, you know, there's that, and this is this these layers of complexity yep. I think that sit yep. across, yep. across this. But I, I firmly believe, like you, Kathy, that this is not an impossible thing to implement. Yeah. But we also don't expect people to implement it and lose money. Yep, exactly right. All for the good of the, the scheme. All for the good of the scheme. What? Is there a chance that the NDIS may um, want to see qualifications for AHAs? Uh, look, I haven't been in that conversation loop at all. Uh, I think the idea was to make this as easy for families as possible to access, and that's like they've done with a lot of um, their decisions. A lot of the NDIS decisions are grey, which drives providers a bit crazy, understandably, but they're mm. grey often for a reason to give participants more flexibility about yep. um, how they they use their funds. So I think that, uh, look, and I'm making an assumption here because I've been no part of any discussion around why the decision was made around AHA, but I believe um, it was it's probably to ensure that uh, participants have the best chance of actually finding one. I mean, we probably all remember that period where local area coordinators were pretty much telling parents to go and find a student to deliver yep. therapy. It was probably not that my favourite way of going mm. about implementing allied health assistant. Um, however, um, it sort of fits with that theory that NGIS has done it for like that for a reason. Yeah, yeah, a range of reasons. A range of reasons. Some of ob- some obvious and probably some emerging and probably some just unknown. Yeah, um, but that doesn't mean that as a business owner you can't demand a qualification yeah. as part of your yep. own risk, you know, risk assessment or risk mitigation. Yeah. 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 Always lots going on. Yeah, there is. It's never dull in this world, is it? Mm. <laughs> but what we have spoken about in the last week or so is with the change of government so when are we recording this early August 2022 it's been a little quiet yeah it's quiet where I think um the new government are just deciding on Mm. their next directions and um a budget due out in October so that will certainly give us all a bit of an idea about where Mm. they're going some legislation in aged care that's been making its way through parliament this week so, you know, little by little, we're, we're starting to see um, that this government is certainly committed to the care and support yeah. sector and making some change to um, better the experiences of Australian citizens. I really, I think that's what sits. Um, yeah, yeah. More of those decisions. I was yeah. listening to Bill Shorten on Talkback yesterday morning and 
he was very um, calm and comfortable with the language that he used around it. He wasn't, he didn't have to second guess himself. He didn't have to filter at all. He just was able to speak to it so impressively. I haven't heard him speak for ages. Yes. And I um, I pulled the car over to kind of listen to it because um, I was down the beach and I could. But, um, yeah, it was nice to hear a fluency there. Oh, definitely. And I think Minister Shorten's been engaged with the NDIS as opposition. From the get-go, Yeah. So- well, so um, he's been immersed in it, um, yeah, right from the start. And uh, certainly there's been little, very little learning he's had to do, which is, you know. Exactly right. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. He's just been able to pick up the role and run with it. So we were all waiting for Had a lot of um, people say, well, you'll know who your minister's going to be, you know, when the government <laughs> takes over and I think we all had our fingers crossed that that's the way it was. Oh, what if it wasn't? <laughs> what if it wasn't? It was that was more the worry about whether it was. Yeah. So uh, certainly he's he's making all the right noises. There's some interesting comments around unregistered providers that we're just sort of monitoring and, mm. and waiting to see whether anything comes of that, given the amount of unregistered providers, which outnumbers registered providers by yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, I think there's a grey zone cohort of um, providers who have registered possibly for the very last time. And we've raised that um, with government as part of our role in feeding back mm. what we're hearing because that's certainly been a lot of feedback we've had, especially from the allied health world, um, because only 12% of capacity building funds are now agency managed. So the last mm. quarterly reports from the NGIS really interesting. Um, the other interesting uh, figure that um, somebody sent me was only I think it's fifty six percent of daily activities funding being utilised. Daily activities, of course, where therapy. Mm, wow, so that's a real indication of where our workforce. Yeah, that and yeah. that. I mean, when you take all the meat off the bones, that that's you asked how it plays out. That's where in the NDIS world, that's where it plays out in underspend. So. Yeah. Um, millions of dollars sitting there just not spent because people can't access services. Wow. That is not a way to support our Australian citizens. But we can't magic up professionals. I've been looking for my magic wand. I think it rolled off the back of my desk about a month ago. Completely gone. If independent assessments had have ended up being implemented, that magic wand would have definitely been needed. <laughs> I'll go for a look and find it. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sort of so relieved that that's not something that ended up progressing because the additional pressure that would have put on our workforce would have been extreme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He spoke about that yesterday Was as I was listening. Uh, where can our wonderful listeners find out a bit more about that series of workshops? Um, okay, so when I, the best, absolute best place, I'll tell you what is the Facebook community of practice yeah. already there. A lot of you will be. So community, uh, what have I called it, Kathy? Care and support. I don't know, it keeps changing. Like every so often if I if I haven't seen anything for a while, I've got to kind of find yeah, what yeah, it's yeah. called and check back in. I've only changed it once, but um, I changed it more recently to encompass the broader sector. Yes. Um, so care and support sector, community of practice, uh, on mm. that's on Facebook. Um, any events that I post will eventually go on the Boosting website and perhaps, Cathy, mm. 
Uh, yes, pop it over into our private practice, Made Perfect. You can either post it or give the details to us and we'll post it for you. Um, so you're very welcome to, um, yeah, to register for those. I will give you a heads up, though. The first uh, the one on viability in HR, they're half day. There'll be half day workshops in early September online. So um, there'll be two of each, so two on viability. That'll be the same content. So you'll just register for one. and. Um, and the same for HR. The reason we're doubling them up is because we're only ca- we're capping the numbers at twenty each. Oh, that's right. You said that. Yeah. Small and cozy. Small and cozy because we want them to be highly interactive. You'll be mm. the viability one at least. You'll be given tools to play around with to play with your numbers, and you'll so you should walk away um, with something that you can um, continue to play with or use if yep. you want, or all to you know change to make it work for you. Um, so when that goes up, probably re- if you're interested in that, register quickly. And if you register, please, because it's going to be free and sometimes people then don't show because they haven't paid oh, for yeah. it. And then you get, the, you get the question, I couldn't make it, is there a recording? Yeah. Yeah. So it's the same. It's much, so much more fun going to these things live. <laughs> and we probably will eventually um, put a recording out. But um, if you do uh, register for it, please turn up. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the subsequent workshops will continue. We'll, we'll, I'll pop them into the group and, and they'll end up online at some point. Beautiful. Yep. Beautiful. All righty. Well, every time I finish a conversation with you, I'm always wiser, always wiser. Um, and make sure you keep reaching out to me and whoever else for the, the support you need to do your role. Yes. Thank you. I know I often come to your, your, um, tribe for data. Um, I appreciate it so much when you give it to me. Um, anytime I'm asking, it's it's with a reason and the data is passed on um, mm. to government nearly every time and it helps inform um, those reports that I provide to them so I know that I'm giving them really relevant, accurate and timely. Yeah. So thank you to your tribe, Cathy. They're very supportive. Thank you to you for all that you do as well. All righty. Any last words of wisdom, Ms. Robards? <laughs> I don't think so. Thank you for having me. This has been really nice. We've been trying to do this forever. We finally got here. I know. I know. We talk um, quite a bit, but this is super organised and formal for us. So I hope it's been helpful for listeners. I hope so too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. For the show notes and other resources, our webinar replays, they're all available over on naker.com.au. And if you're loving what you're listening to, please subscribe. We don't want you to miss out on a single thing. And if you want others to get the same benefit that you've had from listening into these episodes, please share this episode and any of the others forward to any of your other allied health business colleagues. And we are totally here for you. Don't forget for a moment that you can jump on in and book that power call and uh, we can see how we can help you get the best of business done. Looking forward to seeing you there.